In the 90s, these four movies were responsible for a majority of my family's blockbuster video late fees. Oh shit. They found me! Hide! And welcome to a very special episode of Post Credits with Gil Garcia. Today is going to be a clusterfuck of an episode. We're going to be breaking free from our conventional one movie per episode format. And we're going to be going through a grab bag of my favorite guilty pleasure films from my youth. The objective of this series is to revisit movies I watched when I was a younger kid. To gain a new perspective, appreciation, and maybe opposition to them. We'll find out. <laughs> Today's movies include 1997's Jungle to Jungle, a comedy starring Tim Allen who discovers a long-lost son from the jungles of the Amazon. 2003's Grind, a skateboarding comedy featuring the likes of Adam Brody and Jennifer Morrison. Ready to Rumble, a comedic flick following two wrestling superfans as they embark on an adventure to restore the career of their favorite superstar, starring David Arquette and Scott Kahn. And then, of course, there is Biodome, a fish-out-of-water stoner flick from the 90s starring Pauly Shore and Stephen Baldwin. I want to preface this show by mentioning that although I grew up loving these movies as a kid, I came into my revision with an open mind. My attitude and perspectives may have grown differently. Maybe if they've gotten more appreciative, maybe a little bit more critical. So, the question is, does the nostalgia make up for the shortcomings of these films? Or will I see what the critics saw in them? Do these movies hold up in 2023? Let's find out and get to our first movie. Alright folks, let's kick this thing off with Disney's Jungle to Jungle. In 1997's Jungle to Jungle, Michael Cromwell, a New York City stockbroker, discovers that he has a 13-year-old son who was raised in the Amazon. When Michael brings him back to New York City, the two learn very important lessons about life, love, and family. Jungle to Jungle is directed by John Paskin, starring Tim Allen as Michael Cromwell, Martin Short as Richard Kempster, Sam Huntington as Mimi Siku, and Lily Sobieski as Karen Kempster. We're starting with Jungle to Jungle first since it's the first of the four films that I remember the least. As a kid, I remember like Mimi Siku and him climbing up on the Statue of Liberty. I also remember like there's a scene where he pours Cap'n Crunch on the kitchen counter and eats his cereal with his hands. I remember actually doing that at one point when I was a kid. It's so stupid, and it just shows how naive kids are, and they just pretty much mimic everything that they see on TV. Between the four films, this is the one that. It's taken the biggest amount of time between rewatches. I think the last time I saw this movie was sometime around like 2002 or 2003. It's been a very, very long time. And I was actually kind of looking forward to it. I remember watching the trailer before today's episode and a lot of it brought some stuff back and uh, I can't wait to dig into it. So did I leave watching Jungle to Jungle with more appreciation or more criticism? Well, I am pleasantly surprised to say that I actually enjoyed this movie quite a bit, and I probably liked it a lot more now than I did as a kid. I think the movie has a bit of charismatic heart to it. Now, you also got to give them the fact that John Paskin, the director of this film, was actually the Emmy Award-nominated director of Home Improvement, 
So he has great chemistry and great work ethic with Tim Allen. And I think this movie benefits from the two working together so often. They also did The Santa Claus. With those two bodies of work, Tim Allen and John Paskin, I think Paskin does a good job of highlighting Tim Allen's comedic strengths. His manic energy kind of carries the movie, and he's very good at playing unlikable yet sympathetic suit-and-tie characters, which he does here. I've seen him do that with The Santa Claus and other movies, and the material plays well to his sarcastic comedic timing, and it's very fun to watch, especially because it's so out of water. You got the scenes where Michael is in the Amazon, and he (laughs) brings his laptop over, and you see the native tribesmen huddle around it, and he's kind of getting them off the computer, but then a live chat window opens up, unintentionally introducing pornography to the tribesmen. It's actually kind of funny. But it's like those kind of fish-out-of-water moments that made this movie enjoyable for me. You can't talk about Michael Cromwell going to the Amazon without talking about the Amazon coming to New York City. So let's talk about the other fish-in-the-water story going on with this movie. Let's talk about Mimi Siku. I just remember going into this movie thinking, holy shit, this kid is going to annoy me. But I was pleasantly surprised. Mimi Siku was actually kind of a good character. I didn't find him annoying. And Sam Huntington, the actor that played Mimi Siku, you guys may have known him for other films like Not Another Teen Movie, Superman Returns, and then he was also in the American version of Being Human, which is actually kind of uh, interesting. But here he has a nice nativity to him. He's, He's also vulnerable, but has a strong charisma to him as well. He isn't putting on a superficially offensive native accent, thankfully in part to them writing that his mother stayed in the Amazon with him to teach him English. And his fish-out-of-water hijinks are actually pretty hilarious. I, wrote, I took a list of the things that Mimi Siku does in New York City when he gets there that are against convention. So, first of all, he kills a fly with a b- blow dart, which is pretty incredible. He lets loose his pet tarantula, Matika, on all of Michael's business associates. He pisses on a plant in the middle of Michael's workplace. He eats cat food at a dinner party. As I mentioned in the trailer, he climbs up the Statue of Liberty without a harness, a rope, a parachute, or supervision. He also scales the side of Michael's work office to get a better view of the Statue of Liberty. At one point, there's a a woman on her balcony in New York City that is feeding all the pigeons. (laughs) He takes a bow and arrow and like kills one of the pigeons (laughs) in front of her. The Kempsters, they have a pet fish that they paid thousands of dollars for. He ends up killing them, cooking them, eating them in front of them. It's uh, pretty wild. (laughs) So the hijinks in this movie are actually pretty funny. I I didn't mind it at all. And it's stereotypical 90s Disney. Now let's get into things I didn't like. Now we all know Martin Short is a comedic legend. But I'm confident that about 90% of his dialogue in this film is screamed at someone. (laughs) I mean, in the trailer, you'll watch the scene where Mimi Siku opens up his little carrying compartment and he brings out his tarantula, Matika. And I swear, Martin Short gives like the most stereotypical scream in his vehicle. It is, it is funny, but after about 90 minutes of it, it's like, okay, come on, man. You're a little bit one note. Let's, let's. Try not to scream as much. (laughs) So, 
it's it's kind of weird to see a, an actor of Martin Short's caliber just scream majority of the time. The character he plays is also kind of a shrewd, conniving weasel. He ends up being the crux that gets Michael into trouble with the Russian mob. And speaking of the mob, the storyline where Michael and Richard try to scam the Russians into purchasing downward trending stock certificates. Like, what the fuck is this? It's like completely written for a different movie. You have the same guy who voice acts as Jumba from Lilo and Stitch playing this Russian mob boss, and he's huge. He's almost like Kingpin from the Spider-Man cartoon. He's that huge and hulking and intimidating. And at some point towards the end, the mob catches on to the scheme and attempts to kill Richard and his family. It's incredibly dark. And when Mimi saves the day at the end, it kind of feels like out of nowhere. It feels like a completely different movie. And for Russian mobsters to get taken down like that, it completely suspends my disbelief of this film and derails the whole movie. And I think that's primarily where a lot of the criticism of this film comes from. Because as opposed to just having like the regular conflict between Michael and Mimi Siku, they added on this like very contrived and complicated, really bizarre, dark storyline where... You know, they're in danger and they're playing with the Russian mob. I did not like that whatsoever. It doesn't even resolve in a fulfilling way either. So I think they could have cut that out or maybe just reworked it to a different storyline entirely. Now, I do want to preface this. I was going to mention it in my filmmaking factoids for this film. This is a movie based off of a French version. So this is an American remake of a movie called Little Indian Big City. And I don't know if that Russian storyline is in that version of the movie, but I don't like it here. It just kind of throws off the whole vibe of the film. It makes it less fun, and I don't really see a lot of comedy in it whatsoever. So that that kind of threw me for a loop. So when we talk about critical reception, all four of these movies that I'm reviewing today aren't in the rotten zone in Rotten Tomatoes. This movie in particular, Jungle to Jungle, currently holds 19% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and 33% from audiences. So it's almost universally hated. Audiences and critics agree. They do not like this movie whatsoever. Personally, I do find a lot of problems with the movie are overblown. It has a bit of heart to it, despite some annoying aspects. But of the four movies that I'm reviewing today, I think Jungle to Jungle is one of the better ones, and I'd probably rate it like a 3 out of 5 in 2023 standards. Now before we move on, I want to go over some filmmaking factoids as I mentioned to try and wrap up this section of the episode. So, as I mentioned, this is an American remake of a French film called Little Indian Big City, and the plot follows the original kind of closely, except that the original was set in Paris rather than New York. And in that movie, Mimi Siku climbs the Eiffel Tower rather than the Statue of Liberty. Also, in the original movie, Mimi Siku was only 10 years old. But when they screened a preview of this film to American audiences, they had to alter it. They had to change his age because some American audiences were uncomfortable with 10-year-olds kissing on screen. That means Sam Huntington and Lily Sobieski. They had a kiss scene in the middle of the movie. 
Speaking of Lily Sobieski, I actually had a crush on her when I was a little kid, so that was actually kind of fun to revisit that. <laughs> this was actually Sam Huntington and Lily Sobieski's debut film. It was the first time they actually acted on screen, which is pretty nice. And this was my favorite filmmaking factoid of this film. Gene Siskel, acclaimed critic from Chicago, he picked this movie as the worst film on his annual end-of-the-year list in 1997. So, <laughs> yeah, we picked some good ones today. So that's uh, Jungle to Jungle. I want to know what you guys thought of Jungle to Jungle in any of these films. So if you are watching on YouTube, be sure to leave a comment. Or you can reach out to me on social media to tell me what you thought of Jungle to Jungle. So that's what I thought of it. I think it's 3 out of 5. It's a fine movie. I didn't get horribly offended by watching it in 2023, which is really nice. And it kind of holds up a bit. So I think if you have a nice day off, go watch it. It's on Disney+, Plus, which is cool as well. Everyone can watch it. And we're going to move on now. Let's go to the next movie of the agenda. We take to the streets and go for a grind. Alright, so 2003's Grind follows four young men as they aspire to become professional skaters. Led by Eric Rivers, portrayed by Mike Vogel, the men travel across the United States following the bus tour their favorite skater, Jimmy Wilson, in hopes of getting discovered. The movie is directed by Casey LaScala, who was a first-time director, long-time producer, who went on to do no other films. (laughs) That's just how this movie goes. As I mentioned, the movie is starring Mike Vogel as Eric Rivers, the protagonist of the story, Adam Brody as Dustin Knight, Vince Villeuf as Matt Jensen, Joey Kern, Sweet Lou, Jennifer Morrison as Jamie, and Jason London as Jimmy Wilson. Fun fact, Grind still stands as my most rented movie from Blockbuster Video. When I was a teenager, my best friend AJ and I would skate down to Blockbuster. We'd rent Grind, grab a couple two liters of Mountain Dew, snacks, pizza. We'd come home, play Tony Ox Underground, and then we'd throw Grind on the DVD player. (sighs) Times were so much simpler back then. Skateboarding was life. Yeah, this movie was like the ultimate fantasy for us boys. Best friends, traveling the world, picking up chicks, making money while skating. What more could we ask for? And this movie kind of came out at the, at the right time. It benefits from being produced during the height of skateboarding's popularity. And it's also littered with a lot of cameos from both pro skaters and jackass alumni. So there's a little bit of uh, weight here. Now, AJ and I would quote this film a lot. We'd mimic the way these characters dressed and acted back then. Uh, I mean, brown dicky pants, etni shoes, Volcom shirts, spiky hair puka shells, spiked belts, beanies in the summer. I could go on with the way that the movie is styled. And seeing them dress like this, it brought back a lot of memories. And one particular Volcom shirt that I used to love as a kid that uh, (laughs) I wore so much that holes began to develop in the shirt itself. To me, this movie was one of the very first movies that sparked my desire to do this podcast. I should have dedicated an entire episode solely to this movie, but I'm afraid no one has ever heard of this film, and therefore it would be kind of a dead episode. So it's been about approximately 15 years since I last seen this movie, and I really was curious, does it hold up? Do I still love this movie the way that I did as a kid? 
Now, upon revisiting this movie, I enjoyed it again. There are parts that don't hold up to today's social climate. There are some jokes that are very sexist and kind of lowbrow. But I think it's probably the most competent of the four films that I'm reviewing today. There's some cool, unique, stylish skateboarding action shots. The humor is a bit lowbrow. And I think Eric Rivers is kind of a nothing character. You think of Eric Rivers as kind of like a creative skater in a Tony Hawk video game. And that's pretty much what he is. He has like no personality or whatever. But overall, I had fun with it. Some of the cringy, outdated bits include a scene where Matt, played by Vince Villeuf, approaches three girls at a skate demo. And, oh god, this is this is making me cringe to say this. He asks the three girls, Hey, you guys want to donate to the Release the Twins Foundation? They say, Oh, what are you talking about? He's like, how about releasing them twins? And he gestures for them to open up their shirts and take off their bras and stuff. I remember quoting that a lot around AJ. But in hindsight, it's very sexist. And honestly, you could probably categorize Matt in this movie as a sexual offender. Like, that is a sexual harassment. Especially with the way he, like, kind of leans in with his face and tries to open up their shirt and gestures for their bras and stuff. Ugh. It kind of made me cringe a little bit. But I remember that being one of the funnier parts of the movie uh, when I was younger. Now, on the flip side, in the same sequence, Matt then does something I found kind of funny. He proceeds to follow it up by stealing a skateboard from a kid that won a product toss. The kid's holding up the skateboard in a crowd, and he just comes up and he just jacks that shit. (laughs) It was so out of pocket and fucked up, but I I couldn't help but laugh. I like dark crazy humor like that and that was kind of funny matt is kind of over the top in this movie vince villeuf is very one note he is the more charismatic of the four guys and stands out as the comedic relief but in some parts he is kind of obnoxious including later in the movie he gets violated by a lizard in the desert he's like sleeping he gets up he starts screaming and a lizard comes like crawling out of his pants and he's like I just got violated by a lizard, man. Actually, kind of liked it. (laughs) His family are circus clowns in this movie. And then, of course, he farts on the entire team when they're sharing a honeymoon suite. So, like I said, this isn't the greatest comedy ever written. This is just a lowbrow skater comedy. And at the time in 2003, I actually really enjoyed it. But on the flip side, I do see Vince Villeuf's character is kind of one note and over the top and i honestly didn't like him this time around so i had to do a little bit of research on him because during this time vince villeuf the actor was actually pretty popular he had just showed up in rat race the 2003 comedy from seth green and he was also in a few other things so this was kind of like his peak acting moment So I did some research on where he's been since this time in his acting career. And apparently, he quit acting not too long after this movie. And he's a bar owner in Texas now. There's actually YouTube videos of him doing bartending and signing autographs and taking pictures with people at the bar. He's actually a really cool dude. And, you know, it's unfortunate that his career didn't shake out the way that he probably had hoped. But I think he's very happy where he's at now. And... I wish all the best to Vince Villeuf. He was a standout in this movie by far. But for me, the best scenes in the movie come halfway through the film. There's a 
scene in the desert when they're at a skate demo and Eric needs to make one last ditch effort to get discovered in front of Jimmy Wilson. So him and Matt skitch on the back of an ATV, which then propels Eric off of a trailer hitch. He crosses a gap and lands a frontside 540, which knocks over some toilets. More lowbrow humor for you. But it's a cool scene and it's shot pretty well. And the song Fly From The Inside by Shinedown is playing in the background. It's a really cool trick, and it's probably the first time we actually see Eric doing something cool. And it's one of the few times we see why he should be the protagonist of the story. We see why he's different from the other skaters that are on this tour. But I remember that song. I remember, you know, replaying it a lot. I still love that song a lot. And it fits really well into the message of this movie. And I enjoy that scene a lot. It's a big standout for me. Probably the reason why I rented this movie so much. We talked about cameos. There are a shit ton of cameos in this movie. Let's go down. Uh, There's a lot of celebrities, pro skateboarders, jackass members. Uh, Here are the ones that I noticed. So right off the bat, Christopher McDonald. You know him as Shooter McGavin. He's right at the beginning of the film. He plays Eric's father. Mike Vallelli, Stephen Root, Brian Posehn, Matt Ball. Bam Margera actually has a pretty important role in the story of the movie. Bob Burnquist, Bobcat Goldthwait, Tom Green, Ryan Sheckler, Bucky Lassick, Preston Lacey, Randy Quaid, Wee Man. It's, it's a lot. And anytime one of them popped up, I'm like, oh, hey, it's that guy. Bucky Lassick in particular. I loved Bucky Lassick. As a big Tony Hawk Pro Skater fan, seeing him come out on this is actually pretty awesome. And I have a nice filmmaking factoid that I'm going to get to later on that uh, kind of blew my mind when I researched it this film also features a killer soundtrack music like i'm just a kid from simple plan poetic tragedy by the used smoke two joints by sublime seeing red by unwritten law look what happened by less than jake too bad about your girl by the donnas boom by pod these walls by trapped pitiful by blindside nothing but a good time by poison is actually sung by the uh characters in the movie during the road trip pretty banger of a soundtrack i remember also buying this from tower records when i was a kid i was a big big fan of this movie (laughs) now i gotta go into things i didn't like okay and this is where i'm gonna primarily spend a majority of this segment i already mentioned the lowbrow humor but there is a weird mistreatment of the film's female protagonist in the movie that i think makes it miss a little bit of spark Jennifer Morrison, who is a fantastic actress. I also had a major crush on her since she was coming off of the surf movie Blue Crush, which I may do for another guilty pleasure flick in the future. Here, she almost has nothing to do with the critical moments of screen time that they give her. She appears as a deus ex machina to get the main characters out of situations, and even though she has no interactions with them, she still goes out of her way to save the heroes. In fact... We don't even learn her character's name till about one hour and five minutes into the runtime. Her stunted screen time is a real reason why I feel like Eric has no personality. They almost share about 10 minutes of screen time together where they're actually talking. And yet half of that screen time is them making out. And because she's such a great actor, she carries all those scenes that she shares with him. And it could be a big reason why her acting career is still going on. And Mike Vogel's 
ended shortly after Cloverfield. It's pretty fascinating that you have such a good actress like Jennifer Morrison and you sideline her for some like weird reason. I get that they were trying to focus in on the four guys as the central characters and they didn't want to add another uh, obligatory chick to the group. But I think it would have worked. I think I would have liked to have seen more of her chemistry with the entire group than just maybe one or two throwaway lines. It's kind of weird. As I mentioned, Eric is more of like an NPC that you see from like video games. He's speechless. He's kind of just an avatar for the audience to partake in. And with him not having a like a personality, majority of this movie is carried by the supporting cast. I feel like we get to know Matt and Dustin and even Sweet Lou, who is also like a nothing character. They they stand out a lot more than Eric Rivers. So in the end, when Eric fulfills his destiny and he gets what he wants in life, I don't feel like it's necessarily earned as well because we really don't know much about the character. He's kind of nothing. Now, to overcome these obstacles, there has to be an antagonist. And this movie has the weirdest antagonist that I've seen in a movie in a long time. There is a group of four poser skaters that are practically following them across the U.S. also for this Jimmy Wilson tour. And the pro skaters are led by Chad Fernandez, who is also, in real life, a pro skater. But they're wannabes. They're fakes. They act with, like, uh, this white rapper attitude, and it's kind of cringy. They'll say shit like, Yo, man, why you always got a bass in my face? And then (laughs) in the climax of the film... Chad Fernandez goes up to Eric Rivers and he says, Yo, I want you to just bounce, fool. You just don't get it. I just don't like you, fool. <laughs> and that's their whole motivation. That's that's it. I just don't like you, fool. <laughs> Fernandez is no actor, and to have him be the inciting incident to most of the team's misfortunes, it's interesting. I don't understand why they couldn't just get an actual actor to be a villain here. I would say they probably casted him for the final scene. Since the final scene is done on a half pipe, and that's what Chad Fernandez is known for, he does most of his stunts on the half pipe. But as an actor, this guy does not have any skill whatsoever. It's very cartoonish and so otherworldly. It doesn't even feel like it belongs in this movie. It's distracting, that's all. I mentioned that the action skateboarding scenes are pretty cool, but then there's also some that are very obviously bad. The final scene in particular where they're doing the final skate off on the half pipe, I've noticed some very glaringly bad CGI shots that don't match the characters at all. I'm talking like their clothes don't match, their skateboard deck doesn't match. It's it's kind of awkward and with the eagle eye I was able to catch it this time and it, it does kind of stand out. On top of that, in that final scene, the song Boom by P.O.D. is playing constantly in the background but it keeps looping. It loops at least four or five times in an incoherent way where you can't even make sense of the song or even sing along to it anymore. It's just repeating lyrics. And I'm like, did the editors not have another song to switch to or mix in here? Because this song's been playing for about 10 minutes now, and it's just repeating at this point. It's very amateur and uh, very distracting. Kind of takes away from the gravity of the situation, so to speak. 
And to that point, also dealing with more of the skateboarding action scenes, I cannot help but notice a lot of the scenes were clearly shot from the neck down because the cast of actors couldn't skate in real life. Many of the shots you could tell were just pro skaters wearing wigs, and it's very glaringly obvious. (laughs) It's a sign of a first-time director, and ultimately I think it hurts the final product of the film. Am I happy with the resolution of the movie as well? Not really. Eric and the Super Duper team get nonchalantly invited to Jimmy Wilson's tour. Once again, because of Jamie, because she stuck her neck out and she's a deus ex machina of the film. I'm not happy with it. If it were me, I would have rewritten it so that they get discovered by the fans in Santa Monica, not by Jimmy Wilson, and that they discover that they don't need Jimmy Wilson at all. I would have had it have been the five core characters start their own company and become their own tour. Jimmy Wilson comes back at the end and he has like no chemistry with any of them. This is actually the first time he actually talks to all the characters and he comes off as just stoic, cardboard, and I think they didn't need him at all. I I would have preferred my way because it would have been more profound and solidified the lessons they learned along the way. Instead, it's a happy ending that circles back around, and I get it. I kind of like that it bookends everything. He starts the movie going to a skate shop where Bam ignores him, and it ends with him going to a skate shop where he signs and hands a deck to a kid. I like that, but I think the message of the movie should have been, you carve your own path. You don't have to wait on anyone else. You guys have already traveled the United States. You could have just developed your own team made a lot of fans along the way, and then started your own company. I think that's what the ending should have been. It would have been way more prophetic, too. And yeah, that that is grind. My verdict, despite some glaring flaws, I did not hate this movie. I still hold it very fondly, and I won't mind repeating it in the future. My rating would probably be a maybe a 2.5 out of 5. I'd possibly bump it up to a 3 just because of my memories with AJ, but... I would not go higher than a three. I like Jungle to Jungle a little bit better than this, only because I think Jungle to Jungle is a little bit fresher in my mind. In this movie, some of the nostalgia kind of elevated the material that we had on there. It's not a good movie by any stretch of the imagination, and that's why Grind, surprisingly, is the second lowest movie that I'm reviewing today on Rotten Tomatoes. On Rotten Tomatoes, Grind is holding at 8%. 8%. And the but the audience score is 79%. So the audiences love this movie. It's just the critics also saw the flaws that I saw in this movie a second time and decided to take a gigantic shit on it. Um with reason. I think uh there's a lot of bad aspects of this movie, but uh 8%, oof, that's pretty tough to see. Let's go into filmmaking factoids. Now, I mentioned Sweet Lou as a nothing character. In fact, I found that his character is basically ripped from Matthew McConaughey's character in Dazed and Confused, which is exactly the inspiration they took from that character, and they wrote that into Sweet Lou's personality. This is also Mike Vogel's acting debut. Mike Vogel is Eric Rivers, and that makes a lot of sense why he's such a cardboard nothing actor slash character. Also, in the DVD commentary, they did in fact confirm that the cast could not skate. 
due to the low budget, they didn't even bother to train them on how to ride a skateboard either, which is kind of jarring. <laughs> how do you have a skateboard movie where they don't even know how to skate? It's like having a football movie made where the main actor is a quarterback and he doesn't even know how to throw a football. Like, that's weird to me. They don't need to be doing tricks, but I at least want to see them ride a skateboard once in a while. And circling back around to Bucky Lassick, I mentioned him on the cameo section of this section of the podcast. Bucky Lassick was actually the stand-in for Eric Rivers in the final scene of the movie. And the final trick that wins Eric Rivers the competition against the wannabe skaters is like a finger flip varial frontside 540 that Eric performs and it was actually like a never before done trick prior to this movie that the trick that he was trying to shoot and that they tried to perform was one that they'd never done in a real competition before. In fact, they didn't actually perform that trick at all either. Lassick didn't actually land the trick the day of shooting, but they cut around it and you'll see when he goes to land that trick in the final scene of the movie, it cuts to a completely different stance that Eric, is coming down off of and (laughs) knowing that watching that final scene it makes it a little bit more jarring to me (laughs) a bit of continuity error right there and the biggest moment of the film so grind it's a fine movie i think i love it a lot more just because of the nostalgia but overall i don't think it's a great film i wouldn't recommend it to anyone Uh, two and a half out of five This section of the podcast is what I like to call the Rose McGowan block. When I threw these movies together, I completely forgot Rose McGowan was in two of these films. So first one we're going to talk about is Ready to Rumble. Now, Ready to Rumble features David Arquette and Scott Kahn as two down-on-their-luck sanitation workers named Sean and Gordy, who are big WCW wrestling fanatics. When they attend their first live event, their favorite wrestler is ambushed and thrown out of the company. Now it's up to them to rehabilitate their idol, Jimmy King, and restore him to wrestling glory. Ready to Rumble is directed by Brian Robbins, who has also gone on to direct Varsity Blues, the Keanu Reeves film Hardball, and the Eddie Murphy, quote, comedy, Norbit. (laughs) The cast includes David Arquette as Gordy, Scott Kahn as Sean, Oliver Platt as Jimmy King, Rose McGowan as Sasha, Joe Pantoliano as Titus Sinclair, and Martin Landau as Sal Bandini. I've already talked to great length about my best friend AJ and I being dumbasses on skateboards. Now let me talk to you about me and him being dumbasses on bed mattresses. Uh, apart from skateboarding, wrestling was also a big part of my childhood. I lived through the WWF's Attitude Era, the Ruthless Aggression Era, and the Monday Night Wars. Ready to Rumble kind of released at the height of my interest in wrestling, and we see a lot of recognizable talents from WCW. And it was kind of a huge deal for me to see people like Goldberg and Sting on screen. It was actually kind of uh, kind of huge. But like Gordy and Sean, AJ and I would hold fake wrestling events in my backyard. We would practice, perform most of the stunts, and we were really into Monday Night Raw and WCW's Monday Night Show. The movie really sung to me since I saw myself in the shoes of Gordy and Sean. 
getting their hearts broken by the kayfabe of the show and then defending the legitimacy of professional wrestling to everyone who said it's fake. And, you know, I I do remember this movie very fondly for, you know, that convenience store wrestling match at the beginning. There's a triple cage match that has never been before done in a WWF or WCW event. And, of course, there's the Nitro Girls. (laughs) Oh, man. So... One thing I was afraid of when I thought about revisiting this movie was that I was going to find it hard to watch. Looking on Rotten Tomatoes, Ready to Rumble is actually the highest rated movie of the four that we're watching today at 22% with critics and 52% with audiences. It's almost universally panned like Jungle to Jungle was, but it's holding a bit higher than Grind and the other two movies. The first things I noticed about this movie... There's a lot of button fart jokes, man. Like, this is the lowest of brows that you can find. There's a scene immediately at the start of the film where Gordy shoves his finger in his ass just to get a free refill on a fountain drink. It's kind of gross. I didn't find it funny. I actually kind of wanted to puke a little bit because that's, that's kind of disgusting. And the uh, convenience store clerk continuing to, to go in and sniff his finger is, oh, God, I kind of want to throw up just thinking about it. But for a movie about wrestling that's clearly targeted at like 13-year-old boys like AJ and I were at the time, fart and butt jokes were to be expected. Especially since Gordy and Sean literally work in sanitation, so the shit jokes write themselves. The stunt work and the filming of the wrestling sequences are pretty well done. Most of the characters in the movie are real-life wrestlers, so you get to see them perform their own stunt work, finishing maneuvers, and... You see a lot of the same trademark sets and wrestling rings that you do on the television show. So it's kind of cool. I think that adds to the immersion of this film. And speaking of that, due to the licensing of the WCW logo, I really did enjoy the attention to detail here. It does kind of give you a peek behind the curtain in a way to see how like wrestling shows like this are set up, planned, executed Uh, in front of a live audience. I kind of respect WCW for that. I was always a WWF fan more than I was a WCW fan, but for them to put their logo and the actual events on screen, huge kudos to them before they went under. I mean, very early on, we get a scene where Diamond Dallas Page and Jimmy King are like talking in the ring about what moves they're performing. Diamond Dallas Page tells Jimmy King to give him a tackle, and then they say a hip toss, things of that nature. We don't get to see that on television because there are no mics boomed directly at the performers, which is another little tidbit and a little detail that I really enjoyed. I got to give this movie huge props for that. They embrace the fact that this like business that they're running is pretty much a stunt show. It's It's a scripted stunt show. It's not real, but it adds to the illusion for fans like Gordy and Sean that they really buy into wrestling as this real sport event. Now, besides the crude toilet humor, there are actually some really funny small jokes sprinkled throughout the runtime. I enjoyed this one scene where Gordy and Sean are hitchhiking with a bunch of nuns in a van and they start like busting out the guitar and they start singing like Michael row your boat ashore. And by the end of their trip, Sean and Gordy have the nuns singing Running with the Devil by Van Halen. <laughs> it's fucking hilarious. I, I don't know why. Comedy like that really gets to me. I enjoyed it. Now, the movie is very 90s. 
You'll see references to products like Butterfingers. Uh, I mean, I even saw a Surge can. <laughs> Britney Spears is played in the middle of the movie. Sean is wearing a Walkman. It's hilarious to see in hindsight some 20 plus years later. And of course, I also want to give a clear shout out to the late Martin Landau as Sal Bandini. In the short time that he has in this movie, he is absolutely hilarious. He is hamming it up, eating up each and every scene with gravitas and conviction. And you really buy into the seriousness that he has for the profession of wrestling. And he's the clear highlight of the movie that I think that deserves to be in a better film. You know, I appreciate him for pulling his weight in this. And I can tell he had a good time filming this, despite what Rose McGowan has to say. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of that, Rose McGowan. This is her at her finest, man. Like, I think she is an absolute knockout in this movie. And seeing her in the Nitro Girl costume, oh, God, forgive me while I pick up my jaw from the floor. (laughs) This is her coming off of Scream and Charmed. And I had a huge crush on her. And even now, I'm still like, man, she is so beautiful in this movie. But I got to tell you, she has openly admitted that she hated filming this movie and she regrets doing it. And you can tell because this movie kind of sets her up to be the antagonist. She's like this spy working for Titus Sinclair and she ends up getting Sal Bandini hurt. But most of the scenes that she's in, she's very stoic. She looks like she doesn't want to be there. She's done better. And as the prevalent female character in the movie, I feel like they could have given her something more to do that is less one-dimensional than just than just being a, a pair of tits and ass, you know? Maybe they could have came around and made her like a good guy at the end and given her a bit of a redemption story. But instead, she just gets her comeuppance and she gets hit in the face with the ladder at the end and that's about it for her. Kind of a one-note character that does nothing for the overall film, sadly. Oliver Platt. There are parts where Oliver Platt is really good in this film, and then there are parts where he's just an absolute fucking turd. He elevated the character that was written on the page to be, you know, a little bit more likable. But I still find him in many parts to be this miserable piece of shit that they're just kind of dragging along throughout the course of the film. It's okay. His character arc does feel earned in many aspects, but the fact that he fought his son in the final scene kind of doesn't sit well with me. (laughs) I think the writers could have done a better job of giving us more insight into Jimmy King before the ambush. You know, let us see how big of an impact Jimmy King is on Gordy and Sean's life prior to them going to Monday Nitro. I think that would have given him a little bit more of a sympathetic arc. He could have had something to compare his best parts of his character as opposed to when he's down on his luck and he's wearing a dress in a fucking trailer, you know, this is probably the most guilty pleasure, guilty pleasure flicks of the four I have here. It's not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination. It's very much a time capsule of its era. It's very immature, very crude, but I find it highly rewatchable and I actually had a lot of fun with it. I would probably rate ready to rumble Three and a half out of five. It is definitely the best movie of the four that I watched. I wouldn't mind watching it again, to be honest. Let's talk about filmmaking factoids. During the time of filming this movie, David Arquette made many appearances on WCW's actual show. Eventually, 
He was crowned as the World Heavyweight Champion on an episode of WCW Thunder, and many wrestling fans pointed that specific title push as the beginning of the downfall for WCW. I've watched so many videos about it. People hated that they got David Arquette to wear the belt. It's so disrespectful to every single athlete that came before him. Jimmy King, the character, is loosely based on the Hall of Fame wrestler Jerry the King Lawler. There's a lot of cameos in this movie, so let's go down a few of them. Obviously, there's Diamond Dallas Page, who gets the most screen time of any of the other professional wrestlers. He's the main antagonist in the movie. You have Macho Man Randy Savage, Mr. Perfect, Goldberg, Booker T, Gene Okerlund, Sting, Perry Saturn, Sid Vicious, Billy Kidman, The Disco Inferno, Bam Bam Bigelow, Michael Buffer, and you even get a small cameo of Rey Mysterio as well. And it's Rey Mysterio without his mask too, which is kind of crazy. But one cameo I did not expect... And I didn't know about it until I did my research. And I went back to the film to see this part in particular. John Cena is actually in this movie. (laughs) John Cena makes a brief appearance in the background in a scene where the team is trying to recruit Goldberg to fight alongside Jimmy King. They're talking in a gym and you could see John Cena in the background working out. Uh, Scott Kahn did all his stunts for the movie. There's not a lot of them, but he did them all. That's kind of impressive. The uh, WCW license was used on purpose to try and gain a foothold in the Monday Night Wars. We mentioned that the Monday Night Wars were between Monday Nitro and Monday Night Raw from the WWF. And this was kind of a last-ditch effort for WCW to get their name out there to give them a leg up on the WWF because at this time, they were losing. There were also plans to do a sequel to this movie. And then one final film factoid for Ready to Rumble. This is the second time David Arquette and Rose McGowan have starred in a film together. The first time was Scream. And in that movie, they played siblings. (laughs) In this one, they are fucking. (laughs) So that does it for Ready to Rumble. Three and a half out of five. And now we got to go to our final movie. Here, we have saved the best, or worst, for last. It is time for Biodome. After being dumped by their green activist girlfriends, two losers, Bud and Doyle, attempt to win them back when they unintentionally get locked into an ecology experiment in the middle of the Arizona desert. Biodome is directed by Jeff Bloom, who is making his first and only directorial film. (laughs) The film stars Polly Shore as Bud, Stephen Baldwin as Doyle, William Atherton as Noah Faulkner, Joey Lauren Adams as Monique, Teresa Hill as Jen, Kylie Minogue as Dr. Petra Von Kant, and Dara Tomanovich as Mimi Simpkins. There's a very valid reason why I kept this one for last, and we're going to get into it quite a bit. Let's first talk about why I chose this movie to be on my batch of guilty pleasures. When I initially thought of this idea of doing four films in one episode, there were two films of the bunch that I considered really highly. The first was Pest, starring John Linguizamo, and the second was Biodome. Each are universally panned, and people hate these movies. 
In fact, I wanted to do Pest. But after watching five minutes of that movie, I noped the fuck out of it. (laughs) I could not subject myself to watching the entire movie of Pest. That may be saved for a later day, but I swear to God, just five minutes were enough to drive me up the wall with that movie. So Biodome, by comparison, seemed like a much more palatable alternative. I remember Biodome being highly requotable. My family and I used to love this movie. We watched it a lot growing up. My sisters, my brother, yeah, we all just really love this movie. It's completely stupid, incompetent, but we didn't really care. In fact, somehow we found Polly Shore and Stephen Baldwin hilarious. I remember fondly as a kid, and this is kind of like a repressed memory that kind of kicked in my brain when I started watching this movie. There's a scene towards the end where they're dancing to the song Safety Dance, And they're throwing their hands up like monkeys and stuff. I remember doing that around my living room with my family members. Simpler times. Pretty funny. In hindsight. Boy, was it cringy. But when we were kids, what wasn't cringy? So to enjoy this movie in a rewatch, I had to strap on the thickest pair of nostalgia glasses I could. And I had to ask myself, are these nostalgia glasses gonna help? And I can, without a doubt definitively say fuck no (laughs) I really do like to keep my cursing to a minimum on this podcast but I can without a doubt say that I was miserable watching this movie I, I used to love this movie as a kid so why am I so miserable why do I find it so unfunny all the things I found funny as a kid like uh Bud smacking Doyle in the head with a book and Polly Shore screaming, free mahi mahi, free mahi mahi. Uh, Bud and Doyle sucking on laughing gas. It was like, what the fuck was I on? Was I high as a kid? Because I found it in today's climate very unfunny and in many cases reprehensible. Bud and Doyle have to be the two least likable protagonists in any comedy that I've ever seen. There are little to no redeeming qualities about them. And I, in fact, took down a list of all the shit they do in this movie to destroy the biodome. Let's go into it. And we start with a big, a big fucking red flag. On their very first night, they break into the rooms of Dr. Petra and Mimi. They sleep in their beds. But on top of that, they begin to grope their boobs while they're sleeping. Jesus Christ, this is just the first day in the biodome. Holy fuck. Oh my God, what a way to start their adventure. They are literally sexual predators. (laughs) But on top of that, within the very first month of them being in the biodome, they destroy the fruit harvest that the scientists were growing. They attempt to grow weed, which in 1996, weed was illegal. They bathe in the artificial rain generator and defecate in it. They destroy Romulus's species enclosures for his insects and fauna. They break glass randomly just because they're playing golf in the middle of the rainforest. They proceed to catch Romulus's insects by putting up a giant netting of flypaper, which also proceeds to kill the birds that were also in the biodome. They sneak into the food ration closet and ransack the whole place, eating all their food reserves for the year. And they don't even eat the food. They just throw it around the place and leave a mess. And in that same scene, they use their reserve oxygen tanks as laughing gas just for fucking fun. 
<laughs> they find medical supplies and syringes in this scene and they start throwing them at each other. And I think it's Doyle that actually impales Bud with a syringe right to the chest. It's pretty insane. Talking about it is more fun than actually watching it. I can tell you that much. <laughs> but the most heinous of their crimes happens when they discover that there is an emergency exit that was designed in the desert part of the biodome. So what do they do? They use it and they decontaminate the whole fucking project. Now, once they're outside, they could have just easily gone home and that would have been it. But no, they find out that their girlfriends are flirting with other activists and they decide, fuck it. Let's throw a big ass party in the middle of the biodome since we know that there's an emergency exit. Let's bring everyone in. And what does that do? It kills the entire experiment and many of the plant life and even Faulkner's life work is destroyed in a single night. And to add insult to injury, the morning after, once they've killed the biodome, Doyle swallows the emergency key and forces the team to have to carry out living in the biodome until Earth Day. Oh man, but the best part in all this chaos is that they accomplished all this in the first month of their enclosure with the scientists. One month they destroyed the biodome. That's insane. Now, the whole idea of keeping them in the biodome was that they were supposed to be a simulation of chaos and humanity. And I get that aspect. But to the levels and the extremes that they take in this film, it is heinous, man. Like, I don't know how you write a film with two protagonists that are so horribly evil and you try to rectify and justify them by the end. I don't think their character journey really does get resolved by the end because I still feel like they are tremendous pieces of shit. And I did not have a lot of fun watching them do this. And you're sitting through 90 minutes of buffoonery and unprovoked narcissism. It's hard for you to side with them when they decide to come around with their character arc. In fact, the rising action in the third act is so out of character from what we've expected from Bud and Doyle. It's like the writers wrote themselves into a hole and then they had to change Bud and Doyle entirely to make their redemption arc work. It's backwards storytelling and writing and... I don't buy it. I don't buy that Bud and Doyle just randomly had a change of heart and became these like super smart characters. I mean, all of a sudden, they're smarter and they're commanding the scientists how to filtrate air, expedite photosynthesis, and they're organizing team activities. Like, all of a sudden, the other four are going along with them. It doesn't make any sense to me. At a certain point, I even began to sympathize with Noah Faulkner. He was actually very lenient with them very early on in the film, but they took and took and took, uh, and they took advantage of his hospitality to the point where he went to extreme lengths to banish them. I don't blame him for banishing them to the desert to die because of what they were doing to the rest of the team. They were putting everyone else in the biodome in danger, and for them to get cast out, I think is a justifiable means. And then by the end, he finally gets driven to insanity. And that leads to the final confrontation where he tries to blow up the biodome. I still, once again, I kind of side with Faulkner on this. The biodome was a failed experiment because of shitty security and shitty procedures. And for them to continue to live an entire year with these assholes, I 
<laughs> I once again, I sympathize with him trying to destroy the fucking uh, biodome and trying to kill Bud and Doyle. It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> oh, man. What a shit show this movie was. Ugh. But you know what? I've been pretty harsh on this movie. This is the first movie that I've actually hated that I've recorded on this podcast. So I want to kind of flip the script and I want to tell you about things I did like about the film that I actually enjoyed with the film. After Bud and Doyle escape the biodome and they get out into civilization before they throw their big party, they call up a pizza delivery man played by the same guy who actually was in Angels in the Outfield. He played David, the assistant, Russell. Russell is his character name here. He delivers them pizza and a big bladder buster. And there's a good dialogue between them where Polly Shore asks him, like, hey, how did you get this job? And Russell says, fucking President Clinton. <laughs> and then Stephen Baldwin goes, you had sex with President Clinton? <laughs> it's, it's pretty hilarious. And that's, that's one quote that I will take from this movie. And that's about it. That's all I liked from the movie. It's just that one joke was actually pretty hilarious and the only thing I actually enjoyed about it. You know, as a kid, I always wondered why I never saw more Pauly Shore movies. I was naive and captivated by his weird little voice, even showing up in um, a goofy movie. I didn't find him annoying. And that's particularly because I was a fucking kid. But I also found out much later on that he's actually pretty difficult to work with, too. But after revisiting Biodome, I get it. Polly Shore was not made for the big screen. His comedy is strictly built for stand-up and spot gags on SNL. This movie is a big blight on each of the actors' resume, and it's a shame. There are some very good actors and talent here, but the overall product just feels too cynical and mean-spirited to be taken as a comedy in 2023. I saved this movie for last because it was the one I felt the strongest way about. I'm extremely disappointed that it soured my memories as a kid because I was going in open-minded. I did want to have fun with it. I did want to see more positives out of this. But this movie was really hard to watch. And it makes sense why so many people just shat on this movie. And that brings us to our filmmaking factoids. Right off the bat, let's go to Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin tried to advise Steven not to do this movie and told him that doing this movie would end his acting career. Now, keep in mind, at this time, Stephen Baldwin was coming off of The Usual Suspects, an Academy Award-winning film, and he was actually pretty great in it. But to stoop to this type of film, it changed the trajectory of his career, and Alec Baldwin was correct. The other movies that I remember Stephen Baldwin being in are like the Flintstone sequel and stuff like that. Even Kylie Minogue, she was interviewed about this and she refers to this movie as her worst career move. She, of course, went on to have a successful music career, but this movie kind of did it for her in films. And she constantly gets ridiculed by it, by family members and her parents and people on the street. They they make fun of her for this movie. It's kind of sad. Tenacious D actually makes a cameo in this movie, and you'll see them perform a song on Jen and Monique's college campus in the middle of the film. I thought that was actually kind of funny. Originally, Dana Gould and Harlan Williams were the original stars of the movie, but then they were replaced at the last second. 
Apparently, the studio had Polly Shore and Stephen Baldwin under contract, and even though the director went to Dana Gould and Harlan Williams and offered them the job and gave them the script, Gould and Williams actually went deep into rehearsals and studying for the roles, and then they found out just by a memo that they were replaced by Stephen Baldwin and Polly Shore, which adds insult to injury, but it could have actually been a blessing in disguise. They could have avoided this movie altogether and actually continued on to have a pretty decent career for themselves. But that's kind of interesting that Polly Shore and Stephen Baldwin only got this role because they were forced into it, because they had a contract. I know one day my family will throw on this movie at a get-together and they're going to say, oh, remember this, remember that, and it's going to be this communal, painful experience of cringy 90s nostalgia. But today, it is the worst of my guilty pleasures. It is a one out of five. I hope to never watch this movie again. I'm, I'm sad to say. I liked this movie as a kid, but as an adult, I did not enjoy this. So that will do it for this doozy of an episode. I took a lot of time diving into the research into making this episode, and I hope you enjoyed it. I'm sorry for leaving on such a downer of a film, but it was the one I felt I responded to the most out of the four, sadly in a negative way. I want to do more of these more in the future, perhaps keeping them to double features instead of four films at a time, because there was a lot of research that went into this. And by far, this is going to be the longest episode I've ever recorded of post-credits. But my plan is that I want to do a holiday guilty pleasure episode with Jingle All the Way. And I don't know about the second Christmas film. I'm thinking it's either going to be the Santa Claus 3, the Escape Clause, or Deck the Halls from 2006 with Danny DeVito and Matthew Broderick. Either one of those two films along with Jingle All the Way for my holiday guilty pleasures list I think could be a lot of fun, and I can't wait for that. If you guys liked what you heard, please leave a rating on Apple Podcast. Thumbs up on my brand new YouTube channel. If you haven't subscribed, just search Post Credits with Gil Garcia, and it should be the first thing that comes up. Subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or on YouTube to make sure you guys don't miss an episode. And join me next week where we'll get back to our regularly scheduled format. So next week's film can potentially signal the death of a cinematic universe or the birth of a new one. We'll find out. I'm Gil, and as always, go watch a movie.